Karen, great job. I'm going to butcher those names. There's no doubt about that. Uh, as we've said in the opening and uh, even as Melanie prayed during the end of the worship set, there have been distractions today. And here's the thing about distractions that I want us to think about is how often are we actually distracted by what God's doing? And I don't know if, you know, uh, God has allowed all these distractions today to, to kind of point us in that direction of, are we distracted by his grace? Are we distracted by his goodness? Are we distracted by the reality that God is at work even when we don't always notice it? And so today we're going to continue in the book of Genesis. My name's Tim. I'm the leading pastor here at Church of the Valley. I'm excited to be with you. And I also want to say I'm super proud of our tech team. As stuff went down and things weren't working and they had to retype slides and stuff like that. And to be honest, I was totally comfortable with just asking everyone to sit in the front two rows and we would just, I would just show you my laptop and I'd say, here are the slides. But they, they're making it work. So praise the Lord. We're continuing in our series in Genesis. As we've been going through the book of Genesis, we've made it all the way to chapter 15 and Lord willing, we're going to get through chapter 15 today. And we're going to study something today specifically that is referenced a lot in Scripture. But it's not always defined, it's not always explained when it comes to this big significance that we see in the Scriptures. We're going to talk about something that while seeming basic to some, people's lack of comprehension, including my own, means it probably isn't as basic as we think. And based on the amount of times it comes up in Scripture, I'd contend it's probably the overarching theme of all of Scripture. When we studied the Old Testament and in particular, the Hebrew Scriptures, there's a lot of description within the narrative that we can find that is useful and beneficial for our spiritual well-being. We tend to focus more on the themes of the passage when we're writing old, or reading Old Testament and some of these main points that it's trying to point out. So like last week, where we spent a chunk of our time reading about nine different kings' names that I probably got one right, and their regions, we spent our time seeing what we believe to be the purpose of the passage for the readers, the overarching purpose. Today, we have less names being read except for those last few, but we have some specific themes that I want to uncover. So if we spend more time on one verse or two verses than others, it's because of the themes of the passage and the reason for this chapter. Now that I have bored you with the public service announcements, let's jump into the text. Chapter 15, verse 1. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. Okay, there's a lot here already, and I like to, well, there's this one word, and I want to spend time. We're not going to do that much of that, but he says, uh, Moses, who is the one who the Spirit has led to write this, says, after this. Last week, we read chapter 14 with two confederations of kings with their armies. They fought one another, and Sodom, a region in particular, was overpowered, and Lot, who was Abram's nephew, was captured. Hearing about this, Abram gathered 318 trained men, and they strategized with the Lord's help, and the Lord routed the armies who captured Lot. Being grateful for this, the king of Sodom came out to meet with Abram after the readers had been told that Abram had spent time sharing in a luxurious mill with the king of Salem, Bekilzedek. And after hearing about this, we were told that the king of Sodom offered Abram a reward, but Abram wanted nothing to do with it but he told the king to give the men that shared in the fight with him their share. So after that, 
we see the Lord coming to Abram in a vision, and he said, do not be afraid. An entire sermon series could be done just on God saying this to many, many different people in the scriptures. Do not be afraid in different circumstances. When we look at Abram, he could be afraid of a few things, so let's unpack a few of those. One thing that is very current that's probably on his mind is the anxiety that probably is coming from the possible retaliation from the kings that he overtook with these 318 trained men. While he used strategy and trained men, really what I think should not be overlooked is God's help in this matter. As King Melchizedek said in the passage last week in chapter 14, Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of the God Most High and blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. And look, verse 20, And praise be to God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hands. Without God, all the strategy in the world would be invalid. God intervenes, and Abram's enemies are routed. This is why God can say, do not be afraid, not because the circumstances are not fear-inducing, church, but because of the God who walks alongside Abram and many of us. Abram also could be afraid that the promise that God had given him about many descendants was not and had not come true thus far, especially based on what Abram's reply is going to be to God in the next verse. So do not be afraid is this common theme in the scriptures. Because for many people, they believe the opposite of fear is what? Faith. And while sometimes that is a fair assumption, we always have to define words in order for something to be understood in its correct context. Fear is something that in the scriptures is used both in a negative sense and in a positive sense. So in the negative sense, Like this one, do not be afraid. Being afraid would be lack of trust that God would see you through. But in other places in Scripture, fear is positive. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Both fools despise wisdom and instruction. But fools despise wisdom and instruction. In Joshua 24, verse 14, now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your ancestors worship beyond the Euphrates River in Egypt and serve the Lord. Fear, while it's the proper word, has an implication of reverence and respect when it comes to fearing the Lord. So in a positive sense, fear of the Lord is good. Fearing other things in a way that only God should be feared or respected is bad. And God's bigness should not be something we take for granted. So when God says, do not fear to Abram, It's because he knows how much in control that God actually is. That's why we say it's not that God won't give you anything that you can't handle. It's that God won't give you anything that he can't handle. Verse 1 again, after this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. And when we hear a statement like this, we should not focus on the big obstacles, but on our big God that helps each of us to not be afraid. So you have fear. That can be either a negative or a positive thing in the scriptures, depending on who the fear is in. And then God says to Abram, I am your shield and your great reward. God who can say do not be afraid is our shield. He is our defense. He is is the one who protects. And we see that within this understanding that he is our reward, our great reward, our prize that we seek. 
Now, just to be clear, I think sometimes when we think of being with God, we talk about heaven, and just so you know, heaven is not a place of lollipops, frappuccinos, and unicorns. I'm sorry. Heaven is, in the simplest sense, the place where Jesus is at. And I can't think of a better reason to want an eternity in the heavenly realms than to be with Jesus forever. Because we get God. We are with him in Christ in this life, and if we're found in Christ in this life, we're with him in the next. Verse 2, but Abram said, sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, you have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Abram is pointing out that God had promised that Abram would have many descendants, but is yet to even have an heir in his household by blood. So he points out that as it stands right now, as we're reading this based on this context, he would need to leave everything to a servant within his household. But then God replies, verse 4, Then the word of the Lord came to him, This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. Verse 5, he took him outside and said, look up at the sky and count the stars. If indeed you can count them, you can't. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. God once again is patiently reminding Abram of the promise that he gave him. And he steps it up a notch with the fact that the descendants that God had promised Abram will be more than the stars in the sky. And it will all begin from the son that God promises Abram he will have, even though Abram and his wife Sarai are quite old. I love themes in Scripture. And yet I don't know if there's another verse in the Old Testament and perhaps all of Scripture that does a better job of addressing the theme of the entire Bible. What we're about to read is not only the gospel in the Old Testament, because that's a thing, but is the theme of each and every Christian's salvation. We call this series, In the Beginning, Jesus. And listen, if you thought we're going to do an inductive study on creation versus evolution, I apologize, because that's not what this is about. This book is about pointing us to the need that we have and the solution. And Jesus has always been that solution. And what we see here is that it's not just a New Testament theme, but has always been the theme of scriptures. There is a rescue plan, and here it is, and it's found in the very first letter known as Genesis in the Bible. And here's what it says, verse 6, Abraham says, Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. For all the ways we complicate Christianity, and we complicate it, don't we? Don't leave me on an island. We complicate it. We complicate spiritual things. We complicate the Bible. We complicate salvation. This verse by itself really does help put things into perspective for us. What did Abram do? He believed. And that was credited to him as righteousness. Or righteousness essentially means to stand right before God, to be justified, or if you're a little bit more Baptist, to be saved. Seems simple enough, right? He believed. And yet our view of belief has been watered down because of the culture we're in. Like fear, the scriptures can have different meanings for the same word depending on the context because context determines meaning. And so the same word, belief, can be used in two different passages and have two different implications. 
Belief that Abram had, that Moses, who was writing this, was explaining, was a belief that was a prerequisite to trust. And this biblical type of belief that implies trust is another word that we use a lot in the Bible and in our discussions about Christianity, but it doesn't seem to ever really be defined. And that word is faith. So let's move to the book of Mark, just for a moment, and I'll show you what I mean by this. In Mark chapter 9, verses 14 through 24, here's what it says. When they came to the other disciples, there was a large crowd around them, and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about, he asked. A man in the crowd answered, teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit, and it has robbed him of his speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied. How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. Doesn't Jesus sound kind of grumpy? So they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into convulsions. He fell to the ground. He rolled around, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? And the father answered, from childhood. He has often thrown him, himself into the fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, Jesus said, tone mine, everything is possible for the one who believes. Immediately, the father's boy exclaimed, or sorry, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. Now, spoiler, Jesus exercised the demon out of the boy, but you could have continued to read. What we see is a lack of belief that the father doesn't, he doesn't have belief, complete belief. He believes, but he doesn't totally believe when it came to trusting God regarding healing his son. And this father had God incarnate, Jesus, speaking to him. But I love what he says. He says, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. And that's all of us. This is where scripture treats belief like a spouse of faith. But in our culture, belief is not treated like trusting something. Belief is simply treated as acknowledgement of something. In James... Jesus' half-brother, the head elder of the early church in Jerusalem, puts it this way in his letter to the church. He points out that acknowledgement is not the belief that God ultimately gives us, which is faith. Here's what he says, verse 18 of chapter 2. Someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there's one God? Good. Even the demons believe that, and they shudder. Now, real quick, good rule of thumb, I think, that every Christian should have written down and remembered. If a demon can do something, a Christian should probably not brag about it doing it themselves, okay? Just, just so you know. If a demon can do it, don't brag about it yourself, okay? Here's the thing. A demon, while believing and acknowledging and perhaps even having fear of the Lord as far as respect of his majesty and his bigness does not have faith because faith works. So how do you define faith? Because I think while misunderstanding faith 
it actually might be one of the biggest and largest issues that we have when it comes to Christianity. Because we don't define faith, and we expect people to exercise more faith, and we want people to have more faith, and yet we never actually talk about what that word means. So let's begin with what faith is not. Faith is not wishful thinking. It's not just, well, I hope this is going to happen, and so I have faith that maybe it'll happen, kind of, with, yeah, sort of. Faith is not name it and claim it or manifest your destiny. That is not faith. And faith is not a reward for trying harder. That is not what faith is. Now, why is this such a big deal? Well, because it's a theme throughout all of Scripture, but God designed a way to distinguish between those who belong to him and those who don't, and it's called faith. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. And without faith, it's impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and he rewards those who earnestly seek him. So not only does faith please God, but they are rewarded when they believe that he exists and they seek him. But according to what God tells Abram, God is the reward. So when we seek him, what do we get? Him. So faith in simple terms is when our belief leads to trust and it is exercised. Faith is simply when belief leads to trust and is exercised. That's what it is. But there's something involved in this because faith works. Here's the analogy that I've always used. Some of you have heard me use it. If you saw a beautiful little child playing on a busy freeway, I could ask you if you believe that that beautiful child might get hit by a car, and you'd probably answer yes. But if I asked you if you had faith that that child would get hit by that car, you really cannot say that you do unless you run up to the child and get them out of danger. Faith works. It does something. But here is what it doesn't do. It's not self-reliant, and it's not self-originated. Faith is not self-reliant, it is not self-originated. Meaning that you cannot just try to have more faith, like a tree going, I want to grow. It doesn't work that way. Nor did faith, that any faith you've practiced, ever come because you decided to do it, and, but yet God showed up. According to this passage in Mark, we see the Father asking God to help his unbelief or to give him more faith. And I'd say that, yes, we should pray constantly, but, but don't miss this, because I think this might be one of the, the misnomers in Christianity, one of the things that we don't understand when it comes to our faith in God. Asking the Lord for more faith, for more belief and trust being exercised. Generally, when we ask God for something, especially when it is something good and it's something of Him and it's part of the fruit of the Spirit, what does He do? When we ask for more of the fruit of the Spirit, God provides circumstances for us to exercise what we are lacking. Far too often, we all talk about, we claim that we believe something, but are unwilling to do anything about it that actually is that belief and trust being exercised. We pray for patience. What happens? You deal with circumstances that try your patience. You pray to be more loving. What does God do? You deal with people that are difficult to love. You pray that you would have more faith, and God gives you circumstances that require you to trust him. Ouch. 
So if God gives us our faith, faith is actually giving credit to God for where we have trusted him because it was God who did it. And faith was and is and will always be a gift from God because it is the vehicle in which the grace of God, getting what we do not deserve, is received. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 9, for it is by grace, getting what you do not deserve, that you have been saved through faith. So don't get it twisted. You're not saved by faith. You're saved by grace. But the way that we receive it is through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. So again, faith, belief and trust being exercised is not something you muster yourself. It's a gift from God. This is the vehicle in which grace is received. Now, often we say that we are justified, we are saved, we are righteous. It was Keanu Reeves, never mind. We say that we are Christians, but we have never exercised any faith. So I can tell you that those who have never exercised faith in God's grace of salvation, never responded to it in worship or gratefulness or thanksgiving or, or have never loved God back through obedience have not believed, and it has not been accredited to them as righteousness. They maybe perhaps acknowledged that God is real, but that isn't what the scriptures teach, that the holy response to God's grace actually is, which is giving us faith. And this is what Abram did when he believed, and it was credited to him as righteousness or right standing. What did he believe? Did he believe that In Jesus' death on the cross, did he believe in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead like we do as our sole means of justification? No, of course not. That had not happened yet. But Abram, to this point in history, where he was, and what the will of God, which had been revealed at this point, Abram believed. He had faith, and it was credited to him as righteousness. This is known as progressive revelation, which, sorry, I'm not going to unpack it because it's not the point of the passage. The writer of Hebrews, a thousand, thousands of years later, after Genesis, writes this about Abram in Hebrews 11. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to the place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. Abram's faith was seen. It was a type of evidence. And this is what James is speaking of in the second chapter of his letter to those in and around Jerusalem when he wrote this. What good is it, my brothers and sisters? If someone claims to have faith but has no deeds, can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Okay, so there's this child playing on the freeway in front of me. What do I do? Well, if I just believe, if I don't have faith, I go, oh, well, I wish them the best. I pray for them. Thoughts? No. What does James point out? Do something. Not because it saves you. That's grace. But doing nothing is evidence that faith was never produced in you. 
But it's easy to read this and see that perhaps what we do may be the thing that saves us or justifies us. But no, I'd contend that what James is implying, while led by the Holy Spirit, is that faith has an action attached to it. Or it could be said that works do not save us, but faith works. Again, we can mistake faith or the belief that Moses said of Abram, which was that it was accredited to him as righteousness, as just a simple passive belief that acknowledges that God exists. And maybe that's where some of you are, and maybe you hear that and you go, that's all I got so far. That's okay. But what does it look like to start to really engage with this God? What does it look like to read his word and go, man, I, I think this is telling me to do something. What does it look like to love God, not to earn anything, not to uh, pay him back for his gift, but what does it look like to love God out of obedience in his scriptures? Okay, I could stay here all day, and I kind of have. Let's move on. Abram believed, and it was accredited to him, right standing before God. Verse 7, he also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. God points back to his past performance of promising and delivering Abram out of the land of Ur and into the land that he would take possession of. And based on God's past performance, Abram can trust in God's future promises. But Abram said, verse 8, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? Now, he addresses God as sovereign. He asks when he'll know when he actually has taken possession of this land, which could be viewed as, so God, when? You said this would happen, but when? When you were a kid, or maybe you have kids, do you ever tell them that you're going to do something and then they can't get out of their minds like that they need to know exactly when? This is Abram. In some ways, I feel like this is a good question. It's a fair question. And in some ways, it's kind of an impatient question. And yet, for years upon years, 10 years, Abram had been living his life with the promise that God gave him that he would be given a land and made into a great nation. Abram, while sounding like a skeptic, probably is not asking this question out of doubt, but out of want for more information. Verse 9, so the Lord said to him, bring me a heifer. I don't know why that makes me giggle, but it does. Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these things to him, cut them in two, arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. This is very specific. Then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away like we drove that bird away earlier today. Okay, so here's the thing. This request, at least in our day and age, that God is telling Abram of what to do, seems very, very, very out of place. But in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Scriptures, sacrifices were symbolic way of showing honor and dependence upon God. And if known or not, this is a foreshadowing of what God would do by sending a perfect sacrifice in the place of his people that would hang on a cross. An Old Testament sacrificial offering was a foreshadowing of Jesus paying the price for our sins on the cross. So instead of attempting to decode all the imagery and symbolism, because you all know my email if you want to talk about that, Mike at CO Valley. Yep, well, mine works now, so yay. Um, 
which people tend to do a lot in commentaries. People tend to spend a lot of time trying to figure out the imagery. I read a few different blogs on the internet, and I'm gonna just pull this. I guess I am not as intelligent as people on the internet, okay? And just say that the reason for God's request that Abram gather this heifer and this goat and this ram that are three years old and a dove and a pigeon was that sacrifices were symbolic of death. And while Abram may have had the true meaning shielded from him at this time, it foreshadowed what was to come in Christ. Verse 12. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. I don't know if I'd want to know that or not. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. God tells Abram what to the T would happen in the future. He doesn't send a prophet to speak to Abram. He speaks to Abram directly. As the word of the Lord came to him, and God points out what is to come, and by faith, Abram believed God. And by faith, Abram will live with the realization that everything God tells him will come true. And by faith, it is credited to him as righteousness. Verse 17. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said to your descendants, I give this land from the weighty of Egypt to the great river of Euphrates, the land of the Canaanites, oh, I'm going to butcher this, Kenizzites, I wish I just used the Bible app, Cadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, not really, Rephites. Amorites, Canaanites, know those two, uh, Jerashites, wow, and uh, Jebusites. Um, here's the thing, pronunciation, not the point, so get over it. All right, God who is often referred to in the Old Testament as being fire, it could be assumed that this moment with this fiery torch was God personally passing through the offering that Abram had set up as God had told him. And then this chapter concludes with a summary of God's confirming that he had made a covenant through which he had pledged to unconditionally give to Abram's descendants the land of Canaan. Now, generally speaking, a covenant, which if you've been married, you probably have a covenant with your wife and with God. A covenant is a promise between two or more parties to perform certain actions. A covenant is very similar to a promise. But this Abrahamic covenant that God had promised Abram was unconditional or based on God's goodness and perfection and not based on Abram's. In this Abrahamic covenant, God promised many things to Abram. He personally promised that he would make Abraham's name great. We read that in Genesis 12. That Abraham would have numerous physical descendants. Read that in Genesis 13. And that he would be the father of the multitude of nations. We will read that in Genesis 17. God also made promises regarding a nation called Israel. In fact, the geographical boundaries of this Abrahamic covenant are laid out on more than one occasion because we read about them in chapter 12 of Genesis. We read about them in 13. And I just read them in chapter 15. 
Another provision in the Abrahamic covenant is that the families of the world will be blessed through the physical line of Abraham. Genesis 12, and then we'll read it again in 22. This is a reference to the Messiah who would come from the line of Abraham. Now, there is a lot of stuff that this chapter addresses, so I'll give you a few. You ready? It addresses covenant theology, dispensationalism. Anyone use that word this week? Premillennialism, amillennialism, progressive revelation, and yet... What I think the chapter of the Bible does more than anything in its emphasis is that by faith, Abram believed, and it was accredited to him as righteousness. See, this is the theme of all of Scripture, which is by faith, not works, not abilities, not survival of the fittest or random chance, but by a faith that is given by God to be exercised through his people while led by the third person of the triune God through obedience out of the affection for God and what he has done so that we can live, that is what makes us right. Faith, not morality, unless that morality is lived out by faith because we're pursuing holiness. So with all the things we could cover in this chapter, and all the things that this chapter of Scripture puts into motion, here's something, like the 400 years that Abram's future descendants would toil and suffer in Egypt. There's so much we could focus on, which is good, but it's secondary. The main point of this chapter, the main point of this letter, the main point of this book is that Abram believed God. Abram had faith that worked when it came to God. Abram had faith not in just some words. He had faith, and the object of his faith was God himself. That God would deliver on what he had promised. And you know how I know that? Because Abram continued to believe God. Not one and done, but ongoing. Perfectly? No way. Progressively? Yes. And you and I are offered the exact same promise the only difference is we have a lot more of history on our side. We have a resurrected carpenter's son who was born and laid in a manger, who grew up in stature and wisdom, lived perfectly, and you know what his reward was for that perfect life lived on earth? Death on a cross. Because sinful people like us don't like to be told it is by faith alone because of grace alone in Christ alone. And that is offensive to any and everyone who God is yet to give faith to. So church, if you lack belief, you're in the right place. If you struggle with trust of someone you cannot see, guess what? There's others of us that are in the exact same boat. If faith seems difficult, pray to the Lord of the harvest, who is gracious and merciful and powerful to make alive what was once dead by faith, he gave us his son. As our sole means of righteousness, it was credited to us. So do you believe? Not acknowledge, but believe with your head, your heart, and your hands that Jesus is who he says that he is. Years ago, as we studied John, <laughs> Jesus says this in John chapter 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my father as well. From now on, you do know him and you have seen him. 
do you believe? Worship team, if you'd come on up. And I'm going to conclude with an analogy I love, an analogy some of you have heard. I don't care. It's a good analogy. Faith is hard to define. We also really do think that we're the ones that generally muster up the idea of faith. And Father's Day this past year was great, except I had COVID, so I was in my house, so that was less great, but we got sushi delivered. That was great. And I got a Cheez-It sweatshirt. I know all you guys are jealous. And, uh, and I also, also got this backpack for Father's Day. It's a nice backpack. My other one was gross and old and not so much. So I get this backpack, and I'm excited about it. I'm thankful for it. But here's the thing. My kids gave it to me. I mean, my oldest is starting to babysit, so she's starting to get money, but she didn't pay for it. You know who paid for it? Me. But it was a gift from my kids. I love my kids, and I'm grateful for my kids, and I'm grateful for where they trust me to love them and protect them and lead them. But the thing is, again, I kind of bought the backpack. If God is the one who gave us our faith, and it is faith that pleases him, kind of like the backpack, And yet that doesn't change how good it is to have faith in our God who is perfect and holy and righteous. And it doesn't change the love that he has for us because when we exercise faith, we're essentially acknowledging that he's the one at work. So we're going to sing and we're going to praise God and we're going to thank him for the truth of his word. And I hope that something stirred in you. I hope that there's something not only that you're going to take away, but something that maybe you're going to exercise, maybe you're going to put into practice this week. But would you use this as an opportunity to reflect as we sing these words, proclaiming and praising our God who did for us what we were unable to do for ourselves by living a perfect life that we don't, dying the death that we should have, and physically rising from the dead so that we could have life. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. And thank you for the opportunity that we have to gather on this Sunday morning. May you get the glory and honor that you're due from the hearts of the people that are here. May we live by faith because you are the one who is so glorious and gracious to give it to us. And may that grace of salvation where we're given what we do not deserve be received and exercised through faith. We thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name.